Hello and welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This presentation was recorded at the Missouri History Museum on April 4th, 2017 at 7 p.m. It was sponsored in part by the Mountain City Chapter of the Missouri Archaeological Society and the Missouri History Museum. The talk is entitled, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? and was given by Scott Johnson. Hi, thanks so much for coming out tonight. Uh, can you hear me in the back if I speak without the microphone or should I stick by the microphone? <sighs> but I like to walk around and gesticulate a lot. This really keeps me, it'll probably get me done a lot faster if I can't walk around. So uh, thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Thanks for getting the lights. That was my next question. Um, it's great to be back in St. Louis. I used to live here. Uh, we recently moved to Madison, Wisconsin, so it was a great excuse to come back uh, and, and see St. Louis. It's not spring yet in Madison, so I'm very glad to be here. And my wife was really bummed she couldn't come because she loves the spring. Anyway, so tonight I'm going to talk about uh, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail, a recent uh, book that I uh, published, well, uh, Rutledge published it, I wrote it uh, a couple years ago. Um, and this book is really to answer the question that was asked to me 11 years ago. How do you feel about the fact that your profession does not contribute substantially to society? That's, I mean, that is a tough question, especially on a date. Um, and to be fair, the person who asked me that question was in uh, public health. So she was dealing with, you know, people's lives and deaths today, here and now, you know, really important things for their lives. And here I am grubbing in the dirt talking about people that have been dead for thousands of years. You know, I, it, was a fair, it was a fair question. And of course, you know, I came back with, well, you know, you never know when knowledge is going to come in handy and arguments for, you know, knowledge for knowledge's sake. And I didn't feel like I really answered her very well. Uh, she said I didn't. But uh, so uh, this book is somewhat uh, a way of trying to answer that question because yeah, uh, we've all heard the expression, right, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it, and it's kind of an old, very well-worn saw, but there is some truth to it, and I think it's important for us as archaeologists to uh, bring data together to say why this stuff is important to you today, now, uh, even though, yes, I think I'm, we're at a historical society, right, or, or a, the Mount City Archaeological Society. You guys are interested in it just for itself, and that's great and wonderful. But you know what? There are some people that happen to be in charge of uh, the purse strings, uh, at least on the national level, who don't see it that way. So I think it's really important that we point out practical things that do come out of archaeological research, although unfortunately mine sounds a little more apocalyptic than practical, unfortunately. Um, before I get too deeply into exactly what I'm saying, I think it's worth reprising really briefly what others have said. And I'm not going to go too far back in time, but uh, collapsed civilizations are one of the longest lived uh, genres of historical writing, right? We have Atlantis, the first, or not the first, but you know, a very early uh, story about a disappeared civilization, and I can't tell you where it is because that is a state secret uh, that archaeologists are still keeping under wraps, of course. Shh, don't tell. Um, I think it's a really, 
I think it really took off during the age of exploration when you know, all these European explorers came upon all these ruins and said, whoa, look at, this is an amazing civilization. And look at the people living next door in thatched huts. Where are the people that built all these buildings? And people didn't necessarily have great answers. It was you know, Phoenicians or lost tribes of Israel or aliens or whatever. Um, and so it's a, a pertinent question for us, I think, because we live in a very complex society and we see these previous complex societies that are no more. Uh, so I think it is uh, maybe a little bit of self-interest as well to wonder where these things have gone. Um, and so when we got, uh, more recently, uh, scholars have spent a lot of time on this as well. It hasn't gone away. And if you're really interested in getting into the scholarly debate, this book by McEnany and Yofi would be a really great place to start. It's called uh, Questioning Collapse, Human Resilience, Ecological Vulnerability in the Aftermath of Empire. And this is a great book edited by uh, these two uh, individuals. Uh, actually, I went to uh, BU and McEnany, uh, Patricia McEnany was one of my uh, instructors and she was, she was great. Um, this is an edited volume with experts from all over the world talking about collapse and what it means. And they go into a lot of nuance about um, what the word collapse even means uh, to us today. And they pick apart different arguments for collapse that have been put forward by archaeologists and others. And it's a really great academic bite out of this genre, but it's very academic. So if you're not really into uh, pretty deep academic reading, it might not be for you, but if you are, this is a good place to, to start. Um, another pretty well-known one is uh, Joseph Tainter's The Collapse of Ancient Societies from 1988. And, oh, sorry, I'm getting away from the microphone. Joseph Tainter um, has a, a really compelling argument that uh, as societies become larger, with a get a lot of benefit from scales of efficiency, right? It's more efficient for people living in cities to do certain things, and everybody working together makes for uh, overall greater efficiencies. However, he argues, at a certain point, the infrastructure becomes so complex that it takes a large part of the economy just to keep the infrastructure going, and eventually they become top-heavy and they collapse. And I think it's a pretty compelling argument, um, although, I would say that he kind of tends toward somewhat of a monocausal, so a single cause for the collapse of societies and is primarily economic. And although he does say how that reaches out to other aspects of society, I think there are a lot more social and external factors that we have to consider other than just the uh, economic and infrastructure uh, concerns. So, but still, it's certainly worth a read. Um, a more recent article from Carl Butzer, uh, Collapse, Environment, and Society, points out that it's very important that we look at all the interacting systems that work together to support a society. And when one collapses or one part of that society or the systems that support that society wobbles, it can affect the others. And now he talks about this in the, um, he talks about this where he is, um, covering other societies that have collapsed. But he says that we're different because we have access to so much information technology and also the scientific method and you know, a, lot of, a lot of technology. And he's very bullish on the idea that in the future, we will be able to innovate our way out of any problems, which although I agree with the first part of what I said about his paper, I disagree with his conclusions. And you'll see that tonight. And then, of course, there's Jared Diamond, the uh, ten-ton gorilla, just out of show of hands. How many people have read Collapse? Okay, how many people have read Guns, Germs, and Steel? More, right? So Jared Diamond's a good writer. I mean, 
there are a lot of anthropologists who have written very colorful uh, articles about how much they really dislike uh, Professor Diamond, but he's a good writer. And as much as I like McEnany and Yofi's article on question, or um, book on questioning collapse, it's very academic and it's not really approachable for a general audience, whereas Diamond can write for a general audience. And what's the point of knowing the truth if you can't tell everybody about it, right? So there is something to be said for folks that can make academic information accessible. Now, of course, there are plenty of quibbles with his academic information and interpretations. But I'll be diplomatic, and I'll say it's great when people are reading anthropological-inspired uh, things. Although, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot more nuance there. Uh, and I depart from him in some ways. And that brings us, of course, to uh, the book I wrote, uh, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? But you're going to hear more about that uh, throughout the, uh, the evening. So um, the basic premise of the, of the book examines the rise and fall of large-scale complex societies. Note, I don't say civilizations. Uh, the title of the book uses the term civilizations because uh, authors rarely get to pick the title of their book. And uh, civilization is not the term I would have used because obviously most of us know that that has a lot of negative connotations or at least colonial connotations in anthropology. So I would have picked the term large-scale complex society, but that doesn't really fit on the cover of a book very well, does it? Um, and it really looks at the context of the success and failure across these societies. And what I mean by that is I'm not just looking at the rise and fall of these societies in isolation, right? They exist in a world around them, and there is a very rich cultural history that each one of them has, and so you have to look very deeply and in a broad way. You can't just look at economics for the Romans or the environment for the Maya. You have to look at all aspects of their society, or at least as much as I could cover in the allotted space. And so I've divided up the support systems for our society into five areas. And these are a heuristic device, right? You could absolutely divide these differently. I'm not saying this is the only way that we can parse societies, but it was a pretty straightforward way for me to do it. Um, so I'm looking at, and tonight we'll be looking at, the environment, agriculture, social organization, trade, and the ability to withstand catastrophes, which is basically resilience. Uh, and I'm explicitly not looking at one, each one of these individually. I'm looking at how they're all connected together. Because I think it's really clear to see that all of these aspects that are all of these systems that go into supporting a society uh, really are related to one another. And we can take environment as a good example because we hear about the environment and climate change all the time. So we're probably already thinking about ways that, for example, um, the trade, trade and environment are linked, right? Think about the long distance trade that brings all of the non-native uh, non invasive species here to Missouri, right? Or if you've been through the southeast lately, kudzu, for example, right? So there's ways that trade affects environment, and the environment in turn affects trade by, you know, in ancient times, uh, trade winds or uh, favorable seasons for different uh, trading operations or the availability of certain resources, right? So there's a give and take. Um, social organization can be bound to the environment, as can agriculture and catastrophes, and we'll talk about that a little later. Um, it's a two-way street, so we can't just say, we're looking for that straw that broke the camel's back, right? Um, I think it's really seductive to say, oh, the Maya collapsed because of drought, and that caused all their systems to collapse. Because I think, as a society, we're really good at dealing with a single problem. If we're facing a single problem, we can you know, band together and fight against it. But if we're facing a complete systemic undermining of our way of life, 
good luck, right? Um, and so I think people really get distracted by that straw that breaks the camel's back rather than the entire hay bale that's already sitting on top of the camel. Uh, we have to look at that whole straw bale. Um, and while these ideas aren't necessarily new or inventive, um, I think, and I don't want to speak out of turn and say uh, that this is unique to my book, because it's not. I think there are sociologists who are dealing with the idea of collective hubris. But as far as I know, not many people are using this to go back um, and look at uh, historical or prehistorical societies um, with the idea of collective hubris, which is actually what I wanted to call the book, Hubris, Why Ancient Civilizations Failed. However, my editor said, uh, you're in your 30s. You can't write a book called Hubris. That would be hubris in and of itself. And I said, yeah, that's right. But it would probably sell, because you'd see the book Hubris. Ooh, what's that, right? Um, oh, well. So if hubris is excessive pride or arrogance, collective hubris is excessive pride or arrogance endemic to an entire community. And so those of you that have taken anthropology classes or read a lot of archaeology, you might have heard the term ethnocentrism. And this is the idea that your society is superior to all others. Um, we certainly aren't guilty of that in any way, shape, or form today. Um, but when it when it's on the individual level, it's one thing. But when it pervades a society, it can lead to a lot of nasty stuff. For a present day example, uh, does anybody, uh, you can just call it out, does anyone recognize what this type of facility is? Toilet. A toilet. What kind of toilet specifically? Yeah, a squat toilet. Yeah, Japanese toilet. Yeah, so it's a, it's a squat toilet. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I want to note that there is conclusive evidence that squat toilets are more sanitary because only your feet are touching the ground. It gives you a more complete bowel movement. It uh, reduces hemorrhoids, and, or the, the incidence of hemorrhoids. Um, and it's by far a superior way to uh, eliminate. So knowing these things, that these are pretty well-documented uh, findings about this type of facility, how many of you would be willing to go home and uh, renovate your homes to put in this much superior toilet. Right, yeah, and now, okay, to be fair, to be fair, there's some debate whether or not it's completely better, but there's quite a lot of evidence, and that's, you know, you don't have to. I'm not saying that you have to go change your toilet or anything, but I just want to point out there are reasons that people don't like to change what they're used to, because it's just not necessarily comfortable, so we can't, sit here tonight and be all smug saying, oh, the Mesopotamians just should have innovated a new type of uh, agriculture, which is basically what I'm going to say, um, without knowing that we're guilty or susceptible to the same, to the same problems of you know, uh, thinking our culture is the way to go. Uh, don't feel guilty about it. That's how we grew up. You're, that's how you learn. That's part of enculturation. That's part of how you can exist in this society and get along with the society is by knowing how it functions. That's, that's fine. So uh, like I said before, some hubris only hurts yourself. Your toilet choice is your own choice. That's fine. You can sit on your old, poor old Western toilet. That's just fine. That's up to you. But there are more insidious forms of hubris, and they can hurt others. Uh, I would argue that a lot of, say, for example, terrorists of any stripe uh, who are willing to hurt another person or destroy property probably have some sort of sense of, of hubris. But when you do it on the society-wide level, when an entire society says, we are the end-all and be-all, then it can lead to systemic failure. Um, and I think the, 
The shortest uh, arc that this usually takes, or the uh, a kind of a, a blank example, is say you have a, a society that's living in the ancient, in ancient history, right? And they are a small, nascent group of you know feisty go-getters, and they're expanding. They're taking over their neighbors' areas by either warfare or economic means. And over time, they're introduced to all these different types of agriculture, all these different types of uh, ways of living, and they're saying, oh, this is a great idea, let's take this, and they borrow and meld and make this really great way of living uh, that they then export and you know, it becomes a very mm, crystallized way to live. And over hundreds of years, they become more successful in a very regimented way, and after quite a while, they start to think, well, this is easily the best way to live. Look at all those barbarians living around us who don't live like us, and look how much better we live. But then, the world starts to change around them. The environment changes, agricultural conditions change, social uh, conditions around them change, uh, the economic or trade relationships change, or natural disasters strike, and they say, no, 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 we're not gonna change, we're not gonna adapt, because we've lived this way 150 years, 500 years, whatever, and we look how successful we are. We're not, we don't need to change, the world needs to change. Well, that, that's a recipe for disaster, and that's what we're basically going to be looking at happening over and over tonight uh, in ancient societies. And if I have time, our own, um, we'll see if we get to there. So um, one way to think about this is by thinking about how a society survives or gets along. Its subsistence system, which is really the system, the subsistence system is what it is really, uh, or in anthropological speak, we call it a life way. Um, so we all know about hunter-gatherers. They live very lightly on the land. Uh, they forage, they hunt, they move around, they're or perhaps they're sedentary part of the year. Uh, but, you know, pretty, I mean, this is what people did for millions of years, right? Um, and then about 10,000 years ago, we uh, developed subsistence, we, as if any of us were responsible for it, uh, we developed subsistence agriculture. And this was the idea that we could uh, propagate uh, certain plants uh, enough that we could just live in one place and grow those plants and rely on them. This is great. And agriculturalists uh, emerge and we see small little villages, right? About three or four thousand years later, we start to see cities. And cities require a different kind of agriculture, and that's surplus agriculture. You can't have all of us nice folks here uh, not. Uh, how many of you grew the food you ate today? Yeah, right? So we couldn't all have that luxury without somebody growing it for us, so we all depend on surplus agriculture. Um, and so once we get surplus agriculture, we end up with about, this is pretty, not quite universal, but pretty consistent across the ancient world. About 90% of people were peasants or some sort of uh, food-producing farmer, and they produced just enough to support craft specialists who are basically uh, you know, your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker, or whatever other type of uh, luxury item or uh, quality of life item you're making. Um, and then you have the elites. These can be religious elites or uh, civic elites or often both um, who provide social organization for the whole mess. And, you know, this is how most of the ancient societies that we're going to look at tonight existed, with 90% growing the food for the top 10%, and they're, you know, exchanging things back and forth. And, you know, they're taking up a bit more uh, imprint on the land. And then finally, we get to industrial agriculturalists who uh, kind of flip this on its head. The agriculturalists become a very uh, small minority within society, um, and the craft specialists are basically service industry or manufacturing, so probably most of us 
uh, unless you are an independently wealthy person. Uh, you are probably a craft specialist of some sort. Um, and we still have the elites on top, providing social organization and leadership, but the craft specialists have expanded. And the neat thing is, the more time people have to innovate and spend on their, you know, whatever they're building or developing, the better it becomes, right? You have more time to think and invent and come up with new ideas, and this is great. And I'm not knocking this, right? Like this is what allows me to have this computer and show all this stuff and think about all this stuff all day. This is great, um, but it starts to really outstrip the land, and we'll talk about that at the very end. So. I just wanted to throw those out there and say, this is one way that we can have innovation. It's not the only way. So the correlation right now across the world largely is uh, when you get surplus agriculturalists and industrial agriculturalists, you have a lot of people that can spend time thinking about other things, making really nice quality of life improvements. That's not the only way you could do it. Hunter-gatherers have quite a lot of free time. Uh, they have to move, so they generally uh, don't generate a lot of um, material possessions, but they have a lot of free time. So you could certainly come up with a lot of innovations if you're a hunter-gatherer. It seems like the subsistence agriculturalists are really the ones that uh, have to work most of the time. Um, when we talk about collapse, and this is a lot of what McEnany talks about and Yofi, um, we need to be really careful, because the term collapse is not a, a really uh, great descriptor because it's too general and broad. Uh, it, it's usually talking about elites. Archaeologists grew out of a colonial period of European expansionism, right? And they were really interested in the big mounds and the big uh, temples and the tombs and all the, you know, the museum tchotchkes. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until the 60s and 70s when people really started looking into what's called household archaeology, where we're looking at, you know, how did John Q. Uh, Mississippian across the, the street in Cahokia live, right? We weren't really interested in that until later. Um, and so when we're talking about collapse, we're still kind of stuck with that. We're really talking about the elites, because for a, that 90% of the population that was peasants growing food, you know, if you're a peasant serf in the Roman, in the Roman Empire, your life probably isn't substantially different in the Middle Ages, although I have a friend here who's a classic scholar. She might correct me later after. after. Hmm. Um, but but it's, it's a lot of menial farm work, whether you're in the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages, right? So it's, when we talk about collapse, we're talking about very specific segments of society. Um, also, collapse is pretty subjective. Collapse is generally negative. And you know, for some people, uh, a collapse wouldn't be a bad thing. If you're a very oppressed person in any situation or any system, and that system collapses, chances are you're going to be doing better. I and mean, you might not be doing great, but you might not be in the lowest you know, oppressed class of a society. So a collapse might be a good thing if you're not doing so well. So it's a little, you have to be really careful. So transition is a really nice, neutral, very vanilla kind of boring term. Um, but it's not very compelling. Uh, and it doesn't really scare you, which maybe we need to be scared. I don't know. Um, so when I say collapse, I'm going to try and um, qualify it by saying a uh, elite collapse or a uh, total system, uh, social system collapse or an economic collapse, right? Because that at least pinpoints what part of society is undergoing a substantive change. All right. Um, and again, I just want to mention because it's in, in academia, uh, until the 1950s or 60s, collapse was generally seen as very monocausal. There was one thing that caused the collapse, and I still see that a lot in uh, very popular, I'm sure 
I'm sure people on Facebook or social media or you're getting emails from friends or family saying, oh look, the Maya collapsed because of tuberculosis or whatever, like one single thing that's still all the time in popular media. Nobody collapses for one reason. I mean, sci-fi notwithstanding, we have a worldwide pandemic and we all die because of that, okay. But in history, it's all, up until now, it's been uh, pretty much multi-causal. Even where we had 90% die-off in the New World when the, um, when the European diseases came, there were other things going on, like you know, colonial powers moving in and things like that. So there was not just disease happening there. Um, and so we're going to talk briefly. I'm going to run through these five and the case studies I used. Unfortunately, uh, because of time constraints, I'm not going to be able to go into as much archaeological detail because this is a pretty large synthetic argument. I'm not really focusing on one um, site over much, right? Um, has anyone ever played the game Topple, right? So very similar to my straw on the camel's back analogy, the game of Topple basically is this uh, little platform that wobbles and everybody puts their little chits on top and the last person to put their chit on top before it collapses is the loser. And we often peg the loser as the single reason why that thing fell over. Well, not really. It's all the other people who put their little chits on in the wrong places earlier, right? So there's a lot going on. And, you know, when it comes down to it, aren't we all just a big game of topple waiting to fall over? Not really. Uh, we'll see. Uh, give it time. Um, <laughs> that's a sad thing, right? Like, <laughs> not many of these societies last beyond 500 years. Not that there is a cutoff where we're all going to disappear in 500 years, but 500 years is a pretty, if, you're, if your society has lasted in the condition that it's been in for 500 years, you're doing pretty well. All right, so let's start with the environment. Um, and I use the Maya as my, uh, as my case study. And again, even though I'm talking about the Maya and the environment, I'm going to very explicitly say that it's not just the environment that causes their downfall. Um, so in the book, I spend a chapter talking about what's the difference between climate and weather. Um, and I go into natural and anthropogenic climate change because certainly there are natural forces that change climate. However, they are very slow. They're in geologic time, not in human time like the anthropogenic changes that we're seeing now. Um, the Maya, of course, lived in uh, southern Mexico, Guatemala, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Belize. Beautiful area of the world with a great diversity of plants, animals, and environments from basically coastal deserts where I used to work uh, all the way up to uh, mountainous highlands and jungles in between. Um, so we all, perhaps, uh, if you've read about the collapse of the ancient Maya, you've probably heard about the drought from about 700 to 900 CE. We know about that through all kinds of climate proxies that I go into in the book, of course. Um, but obviously the droughts aren't the only factor, right? Uh, drought obviously would have a great impact on the agricultural uh, sector of society where they were dependent on rain for their Sweden agriculture. Um, the elites had a real difficult time keeping their society uh, in check, and I'll talk about that on the next slide. Um, trade collapses and becomes more mercantile rather than dealing with elite uh, things. That's largely not... It's not just because of environments, also changing uh, social factors at the time, because they're, again, all connected. Um, and of course, any society that's kind of living on the edge of its agricultural uh, ability at the moment is going to be severely impacted if any hurricanes or things pop up that they have no early warning about, of course, because the Weather Channel hadn't been invented. Um, so I will argue that their hubris was ignoring the effects of environmental changes. And here, I mean, 
again, we can't blame the rulers too much for not changing, right? Think of yourself as the supreme ruler of Tikal, and you are the end of a lineage that's been there 500 years, and you've been ruling over this vast you know, city-state with you know, milpas and, and, and cornfields, as far as the eye can see, trade from across the known world coming through your capital. Like You are at the pinnacle of you know, society, and it's been like that for 500 years. Your historians tell you, this is how we've lived for 500 years, and people are saying, yeah, but the corn's not coming in, or yeah, there's not enough rain now, and you say, no, no, no. This is how things, this is how we are. We're, and we don't see proactive change. And again, it's easy for us in hindsight to say that, but we do this kind of the same thing. And one thing I did want to mention is why the environmental, mm, the drought might have had some impact on the social underpinnings that supported uh, the rulers was that it's often misunderstood in popular society. Many of you probably know that, you know, throwing the, uh, the virgin into the, uh, into the volcano didn't really happen sort of thing, right? It was more of uh, blood sacrifice, uh, auto-sacrifice. So the rulers themselves were giving blood to the gods, who in return would give rain and sustenance to the people, and the people would give tribute to the ruler, and it went in a cycle. Well, if this rain and subsistence, or subsistence breaks down, then the farmers say, well, why are we giving you anything? Why are we supporting your lavish lifestyle, you at the top? You need to give us, uh, you know, you need to intercede on our behalf. And when, you know, as much blood as those uh, rulers are going to let, they're not going to change the rain pattern. So um, it's easy to see how the environment can really undermine that society through um, affecting the agriculture, right? So it's really all linked. So we can't just look at the drought. All right, and I'm sorry for the whirlwind. We're moving on. Um, agriculture. Um, with agriculture, I talked about the Mesopotamians, probably because they were one of the first agricultural civilizations. It's a really great place to go for them. Um, in one chapter, I talk about how farmers in the past have increased production and moved from being subsistence agriculturalists to surplus agriculturalists. So I talk about things like irrigation and how they increased area by growing these or building these lovely terraces. These are, of course, in the Andes, not in Mesopotamia. Um, and I also talk about storing surplus, which I think is really cool because I like uh, making and storing food and fermenting foods. Uh, some alcoholic, others yogurt and things like that too. Um, but I think that storing surplus gets a really short shrift because we, we couldn't have cities without stored surplus. And the reason that we focus on grains is because they store so well, right? So I think that is an often overlooked uh, aspect of agriculture in the past. Um, so, of course, uh, Mesopotamian sites were uh, located in present-day, largely, Iraq, uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, uh, which is a pretty dry area, kind of a, a homogenous sort of landscape, which is why they had to develop trades, uh, trade relationships very early on to get the things from outside that they couldn't make themselves. Um, of course, we've all probably heard that one of the primary, when we're talking a monocausal collapse, uh, justification for the Mes uh, Mesopotamians, we hear about the salinizations of field and uh, of the fields. And you probably have heard of, in the Bible, right, people salting the fields of their enemies so they can't grow crops, right? Salt in plants, unless it's a salt-tolerant plant, is, is no good. And even though um, the Mesopotamians had a really complex uh, irrigation system uh, that brought in, you know, had canals that flooded the fields and, and supported a huge population for many, many years, 
even fresh water has a little bit of minerals dissolved in it. Uh, and so if you keep putting water over the fields and that water evaporates, it leaves the minerals behind over time. You build up the saline content of the field, and it can no longer grow crops. So um, during times of increased aridity, this was more of a problem. Uh, so the environment could exacerbate this uh, flawed system. I don't want to say broken, but fundamentally flawed system. Um, their trade power declines as their agricultural base declines. Um, this, uh, similar to the Maya, undermines their social structure, which was based on, again, the rulers interceding on behalf of the people with the gods. And the hubris here was they didn't say, all right, well, whew, these fields keep getting really salty. And they now, to their credit, they did try and flood them a little extra and wash that salt out. But they just, after a while, you just couldn't get enough of the salt out. And instead of coming up with a new way of growing food or something, they said, more fields, same system. And they just kept expanding their fields. And eventually, they got so far. And the infrastructure became so heavy, perhaps a la tainter, that they collapsed. So it wasn't just the salinization of the fields. It was the social mess that that started to create. Right? Boop, boop, boop. All right. And again, I know, like, <laughs> if you're really into like archaeological details, I know I'm just killing you. I'm sorry. Um, I, I wish I had a lot more time to go into these. Um, so uh, with uh, trade and exchange, I picked the Romans because the Romans had one of the best economic uh, empires in the ancient world, right? We all perhaps have heard of the Pax Romana or the Roman, um, the peace within the Roman Empire, right? This Think of it as NAFTA in the ancient world, right? There was this free trade area within which the Roman army protected you. The roads were free and clear, and you could travel on them without being molested, which was amazing, right? For, before this time, if you were traveling with an ox cart full of goodies to the next town, you could be waylaid by a highway robbery. Within the Pax Romana, that really dropped, right? So they developed a really robust uh, trading system, and obviously, um, so the Romans, uh, at their maximum extent in um, 11, uh, or, uh, 117 uh, CE, it controlled much of the Mediterranean Basin and uh, southern Europe. Um, they had complex waterway. I mean, it's a huge empire, one of arguably the, the most, uh, I'll say this as a sop to my friend, uh, the, the greatest ancient empire, right, Caroline? OK. Um, so. Uh, this is a little bit of an ahistoric uh, old world trade route map because the Silk Road was not really contemporaneous with the uh, Roman Empire. However, they did certainly get things from China uh, at the time. <laughs> so there's this really great quote from, uh, I think it was a senator. I'm sure I'll hear later. Uh, but basically, when the silks from China started showing up, they were like scandalous because uh, there's this famous quotation saying like, oh, women who wear silk dresses out in public, it's just scandalous. And it's like, why bother wearing any clothes, right? The, the, every passerby knows what the husband, like it's scandalous, right? So they're certainly getting um, trade missions from China at the time, really fantastic uh, trade network. So I would uh, argue, at least if I want to use trade as the main example, although Obviously, uh, trade is connected to everything else. The loss of trade control near the end of the Roman Empire proper, not the later empires, uh, contributed to declines in other areas. Um, so in the beginning, uh, Rome was a very powerful center. And you might use uh, what's called the core periphery model to analyze it, thinking 
They're the center and the peripheries or their colonies would send goods into them or raw materials or, um, or taxes or other things into the center and they would then rework them into final goods and send them out for a profit or send out their army you know, to control and uh, protect uh, the periphery. Well, over time, the provinces started realizing like, hey, we can make wine. We can uh, do a lot of this economic activity. Why are we giving all this money to the center? And a lot of powerful, um, a lot of powerful provinces really stopped wanting to pay taxes. The, uh, the army declined. Like, so there was a lot of decline of the center because the provinces became more powerful. And instead of adapting to this new system like perhaps Byzantium did, uh, Rome proper uh, declined because they clung on to this old economic system. And they had already changed all their wheat fields over to wine vineyards and things like that. So they had really undermined their, their uh, subsistence economy. That's, and I know if anyone here is a Roman historian or a Roman uh, buff, that's a gross simplification. Because again, I'm spending, yeah. Uh, I go into more detail in the book, available now in bookstores. Um, <laughs> So anyway, uh, social organization. Uh, I think this is one of the most exciting and, as an anthropologist, right, fascinating um, aspects, I think, of the book. And it, I go into the different types of social systems. Uh, I go into, for example, band, tribe, chiefdom, state, that you've all, uh, many of you have probably heard of. Um, I talk about systemic inequality, which is always a fascinating subject, especially today. Uh, segments of society, so basically how do we parse up society, uh, more of a sociological, you know, um, sex, uh, sex, gender, race, class, all these different things. Um, and I talk about altruism versus the idea of zero sum. And zero sum is basically the idea that uh, all interactions are win-loss. Uh, and there is no actual win-win, which is kind of an interesting one. So uh, there's a lot of uh, social theory in that one. I talk even about politics, which we don't really explicitly cover very often, excuse me, in, in archaeology, even though it's kind of part and parcel of social organization. And of course, um, I talk about Egypt because it is one of the most cohesive societies and one of the longest lived in human history. We, we have nothing on the Egyptians who were Egyptians recognizably for three, 4,000 years. The part of that is because they were very insular and they lived within this very narrow band of cultivatable land along the Nile. And so one could argue, if we are looking at social organization explicitly with the Egyptians, um, their tenacious belief in order, in the right order, the right way of living, may have undermined them at times when they otherwise could have adapted to changing societies. I'm sorry this is so low. If I had known, I probably would have pushed my slides a little higher. I see you guys straining. I'm sorry about that. Um, I, I will post this online if you're interested later. Um, so uh, we see a repeated boom and bust cycle in the uh, ancient Egyptian um, history where we have a strong central unified state that collapses and crumbles and then the, uh, the state is basically broken up into provinces ruled by petty local city-state uh, potentates called nomarchs, which is a kind of fun uh, monarch and gnome. Anyway, um, oh, time's too short. We have th it was three hours I have, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't worry. Um, so exacerbated on top of this uh, really, so they had this really, this idea of mat, right? The way to get to the 
the afterlife is by maintaining mat, which is basically social order, by being a, a person who upholds the status quo, basically. And so when we had things like the boom and bust drought cycles that, you know, through no fault of the pharaohs, you know, doing, uh, they had years of drought, right? This was natural, it happened. Um, but they blamed it on the pharaoh, of course, as we've seen in other places. Um, they were irrigation-dependent agri uh, agriculturalists, so of course, environmental change would have affected agriculture, which would have affected uh, the rulers. Um, their social system was very isolationist. Uh, they would try and avoid things from the out, uh, above, from the highlanders, the people that came from outside the valley. Um, and only after they had adapted it and changed it into like a pure Egyptian thing would they adopt outside technology, usually. Um, and this somewhat isolationist, jingoist, xenophobic, um, and very fatalistic in their outlook uh, sort of society wasn't able to adapt when it needed to. When the centralized power was tottering and teetering, maybe they could have perhaps stepped outside of that social order and come up with a new way of keeping the place unified, but they wouldn't because they wouldn't dare affect or up, you know, tip up the apple cart and uh, offend status quo and perhaps go to a bad place after you die. You don't want to do that. So. Um, as far as catastrophes go, I can't think of any worse one than what happened to the Aztecs and the Incas. Uh, I kind of, it's no fun to be a friend with an archeologist because uh, so my wife one night said, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to be contacted by alien life? And I said, well, I'm sure 90% of us would die from some intergalactic disease that we've never been contact, you know, in contact with. So, I mean, if one of us survives, great. And she's like, you're no fun. Um, like, well, that's what happened basically with the Aztecs and the Incas, of course. The natural, um, so uh, in a very depressing chapter to write, I might add, I talk about all kinds of natural disasters from earthquakes down to drought. Um, and I also talk about anthropogenic or human-caused disasters, and there's plenty of those, war, famine, disease, blight, and death. Um, and I talk about these in the uh, context of the idea of resilience, which is a really uh, popular, has been pretty popular in the anthropological literature. It's the idea of these cyclical um, strengths and weaknesses of organizations, societies as a whole. And basically, I don't have too much time to go into it, but um, young empires are often very adaptable and flexible, like I mentioned before, but not very stable. As they grow, they become more stable. And as they grow even older, they become less resilient because they become crystallized. And then their stability drops, and they collapse and recycle. Right? This is the idea of uh, resilience uh, that I go into into a lot more detail. And we can put you know, many of the societies that I've talked about into the same pattern of, of collapse and regeneration, the, the Egyptians especially. But back to our Aztecs and Incas, right? So uh, the Aztecs, of course, were in central Mexico. Both of these were in the 1500s at the time of contact with the Spanish. Sorry, I've been a little ahistoric tonight with complete lack of dates and things. But again, time, I don't want to keep you over long. Um, and the Inca, of course, were on the uh, western coast of South America. So the arrival of the Europeans and the disease were pretty obvious causes of collapse, right? Um, they had very labor-intensive agriculture, but if you lose 
even 20% of your adult uh, working population, that's going to be pretty tough. If you lose, you know, if 90% of your population is agriculturalists and then a whole bunch of them die, you're going to have major food problems. Um, your long and short distance trade relationships are going to be severely affected um, by disease. Um, and even the entrenched social hierarchies where you're cycling rulers like, you know, uh, what do you cycle? Uh, like uh, throw away, oh, I, I've lost my analogy, I'm sorry, uh, where you're cycling rulers very quickly. So every couple of years or even every couple of months, you're having a ruler die and then a new ruler come up and you're having squabbles amongst the uh, lead, ruler class, who's going to be the next ruler, right? So the hubris here is you have to think about, you know, if, if you are Moctezuma, you're the last you know, real uh, Aztec Tlatuani, the, the ruler of the Aztecs, and you're sitting there and you hear these reports of you know, 300 guys. Yeah, they're riding these big deer-like animals, but there's only like 300 of these guys, and they're walking this way, and you have a standing army of thousands. And then you are in charge of a whole bunch of vassal states, and they all have thousands of warriors at your command. Are you going to be worried about 300 smelly, hairy Europeans walking your way? No. Had they been, perhaps they would have just been you know, decimated, uh, or more than decimated, by disease. Uh, and they wouldn't have been necessarily toppled by the military might of the 300 Spanish or so. Um, same thing in uh, South America, where the diseases spread much more rapidly than the Spanish. Uh, and they were in the middle of a civil war when the Spanish arrived. And again, they didn't. They didn't just kill them. They could have. They had a standing army right there. Both times, both the Aztecs and the Incas didn't take the chance just to kill these people because you know, they were being decent and polite and practicing statecraft, really. Um, and the Spanish had no such <laughs> compunctions and used kidnapping and surprise attacks and all kinds of like the most dastardly, underhanded things you can think of to take control. Um, and so not seeing them as a threat was a, a little bit of, a, of hubris. And we all know what happened. Um, so I'm going to have to skip over kind of what I start out the last chapter talking about, because I want to really talk about those five aspects in the context of our own society. So um, you know, we're all industrial agriculturalists, or we all benefit from industrial agriculture. But it, has, you know, it certainly has strengths. It feeds more people than ever in uh, human history. That's great. But it's very dependent on you know, a couple of crops. If we had a fungus that wiped out corn one year, things would change very drastically. Um, and it's also very dependent on fossil fuels for fertilization, for production, for refrigeration after the fact, for all of these things. It's completely dependent on fossil fuels, which I don't know if you've heard this, but fossil fuels are a finite resource. Uh, not that we're <laughs> really planning for that. Um, so there might, be, there might be some hubris in our own agricultural system where we are, just like the Mesopotamians, we might be doubling down on this system that is working for today, but may need some tweaking <laughs> before the future. I realized I missed environment, so I'm going to backtrack one second. Sorry about that. Um, so obviously, uh, we all know and have heard about environmental problems, uh, not just uh, global warming. We have plenty of environmental problems uh, with you know, floods and earthquakes and hurricanes without global warming. Thank you very much. Um, but as we are pretty clear, and in the book I go into great detail to show why archaeologists can uh, 
understand and uh, deal with uh, ancient environments quite a lot because we use a lot of climate science and we look at the, the, uh, the ice cores and other things that show us exactly how the environment is changing. Um, things are changing much more quickly uh, than in the past and it might be a, a little bit of hubris on our part to think that uh, we'll be able to innovate our way around environmental change. A lot of societies have faced environmental change and they tried to address it too late. Um, you know, some places uh, may do a little better, right? Uh, Canada might get a few more growing days each year, but a lot of other places are going to become too dry uh, to farm at all as the um, ecozones move poleward. So I'm going to have to skip over that just for lack of time. Um, trade. Um, so today, uh, the average, I'm sure many of you just ate dinner before coming here, the average meal travels about 1,500 probably heard this 1,500 miles before making it to your plate, you know, which, okay, uh, that's working for now, and that's great. But in a future uh, where we might not have as easy uh, transportation networks, uh, we might want to rethink that. Uh, depending on it today is fine, but we might want to be looking to the future a little more uh, carefully. Um, there are things that have been moved across um, the vast expanses of the globe in the ancient world, and I think we could look at them and get some ideas. For example, if you have things that are easy to transport and of high value, these are going to be things that were very early uh, trade goods, right? You don't want to be transporting something that's difficult to transport and not very valuable. You don't see the movement of staples across the ancient world very much, although I can think of maybe Rome importing a lot of grain from Egypt, although that was fraught with peril. So moving things like fresh produce, milk, and meat is, uh, a, in, in the long durée of history, is an aberration and probably one thing uh, or this type of thing might be something we would look at and revamp our in industrial syst uh, system to transport things that should be transported and grow other things locally, which I know just sounds like a you know, hippy-dippy thing. Oh, buy local and all that. But there's, there's some good reasoning behind it. Um, along with social systems, we want to look at growing populations, right? Uh, and I am not a Malthusian. Um, for those of you who haven't read John Malthus, oh, he's a fun one, and you should go look him up on, you know, on the internet and read his things. John Malthus basically thought that uh, uh, overpopulation was a good way to thin out the herd because it would cause a lot of... Uh, a lot of fighting over resources in the future. So hooray, and populations would always be kept in check by disease and war. So he was a real, real sunny type of person. Um, but as we have growing populations, we certainly have food for them today, which is great. Um, but it's something we'll want to keep an eye on as our environment, agriculture, and trade systems may need to change. Um, one question we might want to look at, and I do in the book, is whether urban or rural um, living situations are more long-term sustainable. Um, and spoiler alert, uh, we've been rural for all but the last 50 years, right? So there might be something to that dispersal. Um, when the ancient Maya, for example, suffered their great uh, collapse, 90% of the population, the peasants, they went out to small villages and dispersed because they were a lighter imprint on the landscape that way. So Again, if, and again, if we want to be extreme disaster preparedness, right, this would be, um, I know I'm not being very sunny and I might, you might imagine that I have like a bomb shelter full of canned food in my basement. Well, it's not a bomb shelter, it's just a lot of canned food. Um, um, so as far as disasters go, this one's easy. We should really work 
there are problems that we know are coming, and there are problems that we don't know are coming. And even the problems that we know are coming, we don't do anything about. Like Ebola. We've known about Ebola since, what, the 70s or maybe even the 60s? And when did we come up with a vaccine? Like the day before it became a global pandemic, right? I mean, in, in, the, in the historic, it was a blink of an eye before it killed us all. Nah, I'm exaggerating a bit, of course. However, why didn't we work on that in the 60s and 70s and maybe by the 80s even, have a vaccine for it and not have to worry about it? Because we were able to stymie this one, and that was great. But you know, we live in a pretty, I mean, I know there is a lot of suffering around the world, but we're fairly comfortable. And we can solve a lot of the problems that we're already dealing with right now if we put our minds to it. But we don't, which is a problem when something we don't see blindsides us. Because then we have not only that problem to deal with, but all the ones we already know are coming. So working to, on the problems that we know are coming and uh, you know, might put us in a better position to survive the ones that we don't. So uh, in closing, uh, I invite you all to rethink collapse. Right, uh, Tomorrow or your grandchildren's tomorrow might look very different than today. I don't know. I'm not going to say that we're going to collapse tomorrow. I don't, I don't know. Nobody knows. But if it does, don't despair. There are people who do better and worse throughout history during what's known as otherwise a collapse, right? If we have a global meltdown of the economic environment, well, or you know, all our communications networks go out in a global EMP, oh, maybe you get to spend more time with your family, right? Oh. Which might not be a benefit to some of you. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, right, so you rethink collapse, right? It may or may not be a good thing. There might be some things that turn out better. There might be some things that turn out worse. It's all uh, a little subjective, so, so think about that. Um, and also, sacrifice. Like, I've, I, I know I've lived a very, in a very lucky part of history. I've never been asked to sacrifice anything. I don't have friends who went to Vietnam. I didn't have to gather scrap metal in World War II or plant a victory garden. Uh, uh, lately, we haven't really had to sacrifice a whole lot. And I think, and now I'm getting out beyond archaeology, really, but you know, if we're looking at the world that's coming up, we can choose to either glide into a new normal, or we can choose to carry on as we are and then maybe crash into a new normal. And those two landings make for very different uh, futures. One's kind of dystopian, I imagine. I don't know. Again, I'm not a futurist. That's not my job or my degree. So I'm a little bit out on a limb here. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to think about sacrifice and to think about some sort of large scale mobilization. Because you know we do face problems and thinking that things are going to continue or we're going to invent our way out of this is a little bit uh, hubris, really. Um, and we've seen societies over and over succumb to the same things uh, and thinking that we're different may be very dangerous. Maybe we think we're, maybe, let's say my book becomes a national bestseller and all the policymakers say, okay, let's do this, let's revamp our infrastructure and completely change it over, and then we don't collapse. Yay! <laughs> I'm happy. I'd love if that happened, but if it doesn't, uh, grow, learn to garden. Um, OK, so what am I doing about it? That's exactly what I'm doing about it. So this question, how do you feel about the fact that your profession doesn't contribute substantially to society? Well, that date was 11 years ago. Uh, that's my wife, uh, who gives me a hard time all the time because she's a really good person, um, helping people in their everyday lives on, like, real, on a real level. And so um, I've basically 
not an academic any, well, I still teach occasionally, uh, but I've basically formed a new institute, a research institute that uh, looks at experimental archaeology and pre-industrial technology and how to adapt it, not necessarily to make us all Luddites or to go back in time to live in some, you know, uh, middle or middle age sort of serfdom life. No, I mean, take these ideas, adapt them, and make them our own and new. And that's basically what I'm trying to do here. Um, and so I don't have time to get too much into the institute, but you can check it out. Um, it's on the internet. I think you've heard of the internet. Uh, Lowtechinstitute.org. Uh, you can also email us or uh, come chat with me afterwards. But uh, this, is, this is what I'm doing, and I'm trying to use some of this archaeological data to actually test it out nowadays and uh, running workshops and things like that and trying to revive a lot of these uh, more handicraft, more human-scale DIY sorts of solutions to taking care of ourselves. And a lot of that came out of the depression of writing this book because writing about the collapse of society can be very depressing, even on our own. Just writing about all these different ways in which society can fall apart, maybe it affected me. I don't know. But anyway, uh, thank you very much. The lights. Oh, I don't have lights. And I hope I didn't. I forgot my watch. If I went too far over and do it, five minutes. Okay. Are there any questions? I hesitate to ask. Are there questions? Yes. You're the first. Yes, please. Um, when you talked about the decline in the Roman Empire, yeah. one theory I've heard is that the rise of Christianity, first Roman Empire, do you have any about that? So, uh, for those in the back, the question was did the rise of Christianity have any effect on the collapse of the Roman Empire? I don't know, Caroline, did it? Um, I'm, so I'm not a Roman historian. That's arguably my weakest location. However, um, any disruption of the old way probably wouldn't have a deleterious effect. And I know that the, Byzanti the Byzantine Empire was Christian, and that grew out of it. I can, I, I could, yeah, in the East. But I, I could be asked a question about, or I could be asked an answer about uh, how. Uh, Religion can bind societies together for mutual benefit, but I don't know, Caroline, do you have any yay, nay? Uh, yes and no, I guess I would say. All right, <laughs> there's the definitive answer, yes and no. Yeah, yeah. I, I was harping on the economic because that was my case study for economics, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. Christianity rising at the time would have certainly uh, disrupted the social system for sure. Yeah, others, other questions? Oh, yes. Well, through all the textbook part of what my question was about okay. the contribution that religion made to the sure. collapse of various societies, not just Rome, but sure. Easter Island. Oh, okay. So, so I talk about religion in the uh, social organization chapter because I see it as a really useful way that societies throughout time have organized themselves in a way. Sorry, the question was how does religion play a role in the rise or fall of civilizations? Excuse me. And, um, Obviously, uh, a society like the Egyptians with a very cohesive and uh, well-established religion can do a lot of good in making a society work together for a common cause. Uh, there are lots of sociological studies showing that people will give uh, greater benefit of the doubt and a lot more uh, collaboration with people who are co-religionists. Even if they don't know them personally, if they know they're the same religion, they're often more likely to work together. And so like we see... 
like I said, the Egyptians lasted for 3,000 years, and I would argue that a lot of that had to do with that very strong core of what it meant to be Egyptian, and a lot of that was religious. But then what about the religious wars? In wars. The religious wars. wars. With, oh, 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 sure, yeah, I'm. So you could, you, so yes, um, I'm kind of soft, soft peddling the benefits of religion. Yes, there are certainly uh, one component of banding together under the banner of a certain religion can mean that you can band together against another one, right? So certainly. Um, the us versus them mentality can be exacerbated by religion? Sure, certainly. Yes, question we in the back. I also kind of think still see it around the same because we need to let the time of the military and lots. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. The question was how, how do. Uh, how do communist states. Okay. Well. Yeah, sure. The question was how do some communist states like Laos and what was the other example? And North Korea stick around. Uh, even though their economies have collapsed. Well, we'll see for North Korea. Uh, um, and I would argue, okay, I don't want to, I would, I would somewhat question how truly communist these societies are, uh, number one, but I would call them totalitarian dictatorships largely. Um, and there are certainly totalitarian dictatorships, but not to the same level in the ancient world. Uh, there would have been people put to death for heresy and things like that. So we see parallels. Why do they stay afloat? That's a great question. Uh, momentum? I don't know. Uh, perhaps people are more afraid of the devil they don't know than the devil that they do. Right? They know things are bad right now in these states. I, frankly, I, that, I mean, I mean, this is moving into personal opinion on, on my part rather than actual knowledge of modern communist states. I'm sorry, I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to beg off. I'm sorry. I have no good question for you uh, other than personal opinion, which I'm not going to offer. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Right, a collapse, uh, the comment was that kind of goes into what I was saying about uh, collapse not being the end. Right, yeah, like I'm a Maya archaeologist originally by training, and people would often ask me, where'd the Maya go after the collapse? Like, they didn't go anywhere. They're just there farming, living their lives, speaking Maya. They're still there. Um, so yeah, um, collapse is inevitable of every system in nature. I mean. The, Entropy, it's a thing. Um, and so how we deal with that, you know, a collapse of one system doesn't mean that every single thing else has to degrade or change. And a lot of it is, you know, uh, cost-benefit analysis. Or how, how do we view that or how does it affect us is the main question that often we ask. And so the collapse of certain parts of society may certainly be bad, right? If we had a collapse tomorrow of the fossil fuel economy, we had no fossil fuels starting tomorrow, a lot of people would die. It would be terrible. It would be a disaster unprecedented on the face of the earth. Uh, I will say, though, that after the great, I'm not advocating the mass die-off or the purge or anything, but after the bubonic plague, and also after 90% of North American native peoples died, 
the people that were living there had an abundance of stuff available to them. They had a lot of land and a lot of, I know you laugh, but a lot of infrastructure. Think of the Great Death, or the Black Death in Europe. After that, the economy did really well because they had all this infrastructure in place and a lot less people. And so they were able to kind of live a little higher on the hog than they had before. So I'm not I am not advocating <laughs> massive die-off in order to solve our problems. It could happen anyway, but I'm not advocating it. Yes. Yes, sir. North Korea more as a monarchy. Sure. Sure. Cleo dynamics? No. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, uh, no, I have not heard of Cleo dynamics. Um, and yeah, North Korea actually it reminds me of a lot of uh, ancient, a lot of ancient divine rulers, right? It was hereditary, and they got their right to rule from the gods. And some of the, uh, admittedly, you know non-professional perusal of North Korean propaganda that I've seen, it almost seems supernatural divine right to rule on their part, which is, you know, a, a, a nation state level society with ancient sorts of uh, rulership. But we, I mean, we do the same thing. We have, you know, um, a lot of religious uh, pageantry associated with our own rulership and uh, people praying for the president or whatever, which is, you know, I'm not, Taking a pro or con <laughs> comment on that, I'm just saying a lot. A lot of civic religious hierarchies are bound up together, and it's nice that we think that the church and state are separate, uh, but that's extremely rare in history, right? Most societies had civic religious leaders that were one and the same. Yes, Caroline. Uh, have you ever heard of the class of Walter Scheidel? Walter Scheidel. No. He works on Uh-oh. Well, we can choose to do it without that, but we don't choose to do it, it seems. At least, judging from history, no comment on what you guys want to do tomorrow. Go for it. Yes, sir. How long before things are going to start looking up for Flint Nappers? <laughs> <laughs> Have things ever looked down for Flint Nappers? I'm very bullish on Flint Nappers. Um, it's never a bad idea. You never know when something like that will come in handy. And so keeping flint napping alive is a wonderful, I, I'm sure there's a core group of flint nappers in here. Uh, the question was, uh, when are things going to start looking up for flint nappers? Um, and you never, you never know when something like that will come in handy. So it's a good, good skill to have, and it's a fun skill to have. So yeah. Good one. Yes, sir. Well, I was intrigued by your chart that had the round figure on it that shows sort of resilience and adaptability in a circle. Yep. And it seems to me that along with your five big elements that will lead to collapse or transition. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's an understudied kind of area of human affairs. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these empires you can show in art, especially the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. of the Republic and the early empire mm -hmm. making all the things that they took over more efficient mm -hmm. than the late empire. They got so over-bureaucratized and top-heavy. Mm -hmm. Basically, the, the, the productivity of society couldn't grow enough, mm -hmm. fast enough, to, keep to up support with. the top-heavy elites that were drawing mm -hmm. on and they collapsed. Didn't collapse for the elite, not necessarily yeah. for the peasants. I mean, 
to me, that's a, that, it seems like that's relatively understudied because it's, it's a systemic problem yep. that is not related to, you know, the, 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 the causes du jour that people, mm -hmm. especially the Mayas, or almost the history of mm. whatever people were thinking about. Well, you know, it's because of warfare. Then we say, no, they didn't have warfare. They were a yeah, uniquely yeah. peaceful culture, which turns out not to be true. But it, disease yeah. comes along with gun germs and seal, they die from disease. Then when the environmentalists come along, they die because the environment collapsed. And then the, when climate change people come along, they collapse because they ran out of water. It's always whatever is the fad of the time. It's almost like science fiction always reflects current society. Oh, absolutely. So I wonder if these systemic uh, of view of, of analyzing the whole system of becoming top-heavy through over-bureaucratization of capital mm -hmm. over-regulation, over-taxation, you know, Julius Caesar would go into an area of Europe that he was conquering. He would say, look, come to a new town. If you was come into the gates and don't fight us, mm -hmm. we will bring Roman law and architecture and stability. Yep. We'll make the roads safe. We'll make the rivers yep. safe. Yep. There'll be no crime. We will uh, uh, rebuild your cities in marble. We won't take anything. Chicken in every pot. You. Yep. We'll pay for what the crops. And on top of that, you're will leave the elites in control, you can keep your religion, yep. and the average level of taxes will be 20% less than they were under your old rulers. That's a pretty good deal. And if you fight us, we'll conquer you and kill all of us. Right. So what do you want to do? That's exactly what I mean, that, that was yeah. the choice they gave yep. them. But later in the later Roman Empire, all those things went up, 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 taxes, yep. regulations. Yep. I mean, is there more work being done today on that systemic? Yes, resilience is a very popular, um, especially, it's really, came into its own maybe five or, five or six years ago. It started becoming pretty common in a lot of uh, academic papers. There was a volume put out by University of, uh, by Sunny Falsight at, uh, out of Carbondale. Um, SIEU is in Carbondale? Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a whole book on a big symposium that was done there on resilience that might interest you. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, yeah, the Romans did the same thing. The Aztecs did the exact same thing. They would walk into a town with their huge army and say, Hey, you can fight us, or you can join us, and basically, uh, most people joined. It's like kind of like the mafia. Okay, yeah, yeah. Resilience is pretty, yeah, pretty popular. Um, and I said in the book when I got done talking about resilience in the few pages I had, I spent on it. I said I could have written this entire book using resilience as the lens, like. This is one point of view, right? These are all things that happen, and this is one way to look at them. There's other ways to look at them. There's other lenses or different types of glasses, right, that you can put on and look at the same facts and come to similar or even different conclusions, right? So this is just a theoretical lens through which I want to see it. Yeah. An announcement. Yes. Well, I, I didn't want to do it now. Um, anyway, uh, our 50th it's an annual consultant mushroom side. Of April, and it's also going to be our 50th wedding anniversary. Oh. So everybody is welcome. If you need information, I have it here. Right. No, 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 no. Yeah. I think so. I think so, but I don't know so. They are now, probably. Yeah. People might ask that. I didn't get a chance to find out either. Okay. Yeah. Thank you all. Or is there more? Are that? Okay. All right. Th thank you all. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.